So take your Bibles and go to the book of Acts, chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and make this public service announcement for you. I decided to take up a second job as a rodeo clown. They had shirts on sale, so I thought I'd go ahead and get a jump start on the school. (laughs) Acts chapter 1. All right, so you just need to get that out of the way, so now you can focus in on what's important, okay? Is it possible for a church to have a power failure? In May, seemed like it was May, it might have been early June, I don't remember, it was in the midst of wedding season for me and my schedule, and I happened to find myself over in our family life center on a Saturday afternoon when one of those uh, East Texas storms blew through, and uh, somehow, I don't know if a tree fell across a line or what, but snapped a pole down 69 and knocked out all of the power in the church, and we had a family life center full of people for a Eagle Scout award ceremony, and as I sat at that table, a pastor's thoughts go to, we have a room full of people and no power, and surely somebody won't fall and hurt themselves, and we'll have to have an insurance claim out of the deal. But um, I think that points me to the bigger question for us. We're used to power failures around here, especially during hurricane season, and you can go back through. I understand I was out of town over the weekend, but I understand that uh, Coons had a bit of a power failure recently, and has that ever happened where a church has a power failure of the worst kind? I went to a conference in April, and they trotted out for us in this pastor's conference some of the big shots of preacher world these days. There is a move in church work where churches uh, are largely abandoning denominations as we know them, but many of those same churches are developing kind of their own denomination, at least in my terminology, because a single church will have a lead pastor on a central campus, but then they'll have multiple other campuses with campus pastors all serving under that one. It's a mini-denomination, I think. And so at this pastor's conference that I went to, they were touting for us this new model of leadership in church, uh, and they, so they just started marching these multi-site lead pastors in front of us. I find it interesting that of those that were brought before us to speak into our situations and try to help us see the better way, that at least three of those that I know of either already had gone through burnout or power failure in this case, uh, and one recently did. As a matter of fact, this week I was reading an article of one of the guys who was really pushed hard as he's, this is one of the guys in Georgia and he's the guy. And uh, I read this week where he has totally left the ministry because he just has nothing left to give at the ripe old age of his late thirties. I rather suspect that you don't have to be a pastor of a multi-site church to experience burnout or power failure in your Christian experience. As a matter of fact, that committee that Aaron announced to you, we 
work in our church from a committee on committee's point of reference and the people that you nominate for that committee by filling out those forms that are out there at the back actually. Uh, whoever serves on that committee on committee is going to go to other people and say, hey, would you be willing to serve on a committee? And many times the answer back to them will be, no, I just, I kind of need some time off. Churches are really good about moving people into the position of power failure. That's unfortunate because it's not the biblical model, which means that our model is wrong which makes it a good time for us to look at the book of Acts. And so in the book of Acts, the first chapter, we we come across this little section. It's verses 6 through 8 that we will be in today, and most of the time we'll be in verses 6 and 7. But as we do this in a relatively quick fashion today, what I want to do is throw a couple of statements out there that are actually intended from this passage to help us avoid power failure. And here's the first one. The first way, the primary way, I might say, that we avoid power failure in our individual Christian service, but also as a local congregation, is that we get our focus right. Now, actually, a couple of these are going to grow out of this one piece of a verse, or actually it kind of, kind of stretches between verses 6 and 7. Let me just go ahead and read those two verses for us. Acts 1, verse 6, so when they, that is the disciples, had come together, they asked him, that is Jesus, this is, I interrupt the reading to tell you, this is just before Jesus ascends back to heaven. It's after the resurrection. It's at the end of that section of time where Jesus, post-resurrection, spends time with his disciples. And he's about to go back to heaven, so this is the last word kind of a thing, very important. And so they ask him the burning question, hey, isn't it now that you're fixing, that's East Texas, that you're fixing to overthrow the Roman government? Isn't it now that we can count on you to be the Messiah that we've all been looking for? Jesus' answer is incredibly concise. Nunya. You know the term nunya? It's the term that essentially is none of your business. Now, here's where Jesus has come from. I'll read it in just a second. I know you're looking at me like, you just started reading. What's... Here's the deal with this. These disciples were not the the big shot religious guys at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes on the scene and he's ready to begin that public part of his ministry. His childhood is over. His middle life is over. And he comes at the age of roughly 30 and he steps into the situation. He brings all of who he is, God in the flesh. And he starts calling these nobodies. He doesn't go to Jerusalem and pick out the high priest, the chief priest. He doesn't go up there and start pulling out all these Levites who are going to be the guys, you know, to kind of explain a better way. He doesn't go to the Pharisees. He goes to these fishermen and these tax collectors and these everyday ordinary people. And he says, hey, you guys come with me and I will absolutely blow your mind with the life that I offer to you. I will reorient everything about your life. And so they follow 
but they come out of a background where they're looking for that political Messiah. They're looking for the guy that was promised from centuries before who would come in, especially in that time the Roman government was in charge, and they're looking for the Messiah who will come in and clean house, and the Jews will rise to the ascendancy of all of world politics. That's what they're looking for. And it's interesting to me that they get all the way now to the end of Jesus' ministry, past the resurrection, just before he goes back. And the burning question still on their minds is, is it now? Is it now? Are you going to do it now? And kind of we read in between the lines there to recognize that these guys are essentially asking, hey, isn't it our time now? You see, focus for us is a powerful force. The point at which we focus our energies, our efforts, and our minds has a way of reorienting how we live our lives. I learned this from my dad. Now, many years ago, uh, my dad was uh, pastoring a church in Ballinger, Texas. That's pretty much central Texas. And he was also going to seminary in Fort Worth at the time. And so what he would do is uh, be at... Fort Worth all week long, leave out on Monday morning after weekend activities. He'd come back in on Friday night, and so he had essentially uh, Saturday and Sunday, and he'd preach on Sunday, and so Saturday was kind of family time for us because my brother and myself, I was late elementary school, probably early, early middle school in those years, uh, and so all week long we were going to school, mom was working, all that kind of stuff, and dad was gone. So when he came in, Saturday was our time to do stuff with him. And dad had learned to play ping pong in Fort Worth. He was staying at a widow's house who had extra rooms, and it was right across from the seminary. And so she rented out rooms to these preacher boys who were trying to to go to school. And so dad rented one of those. But a guy who rented one of those other rooms was from the Far East. His name was Andrew Lee. And he played ping pong like nobody's business. And my dad's competitive to a fault probably, at least in those days. And I think that Andrew must have been just cleaning my dad's clock, playing ping pong around the house there. And so my dad started learning. And so when he came back, he took it out on us and beat my brother and I crazily bad with ping pong. And then we're competitive enough that we started asking him to teach us. And so dad started teaching us. And over a period of time, he taught us the game of ping pong. But what he did not do was what we wanted him to do. What we wanted him to do was wave his paddle, and all of a sudden, we were incredibly good at ping pong. But Dad had a different method. He chose little pieces of the game of ping pong, and he would just drill those into us. For weeks at a time, we would go to the ping pong table at the church on a Saturday, and he would take the ball, and he would throw it over the net so that it would bounce up high, and he was teaching us how to do an overhand forehand slam. And I got sick of doing overhand, forehand slams. Week after week, hour after hour, that's what he taught us. You see, I wanted to learn the game of ping pong because I wanted to beat him. I didn't really want to have to learn the game of ping pong. You understand the difference of what I'm talking about? Um, And I'm not sure that I ever got good enough to beat him. But in... The focus that he gave us with one element of the game at a time, my brother and I would go to youth camp every year and clean house in the ping pong tournament. 
because nobody knew how to return a forehand, overhand slam. Focus is a powerful force in life. And Jesus uncovers a truth here that it's an uncomfortable truth for us, I think. The reality seems to be in the church of our day at least, and it's been my, my experience through church all through, through these years, is that our focus easily gets lost. Have you heard the term, it's a medical term, I think, uh, or at least it's given as a medical term. It's four simple letters, A-D-H-D. You know that term? Okay, now we know the ADHD, especially if you're an educator, you know the ADHD term. Um, do you know that the last letter of ADHD is a revealing word? It stands for a revealing word. The last letter, D, stands for disorder. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, it's commonplace. It's normal in our times, except the name of it implies, doesn't imply, it flat out states, it is a disorder. Things are not exactly the way they're supposed to be. Now, a lot of people wear that label with pride and, you know, well, I, you know me. I, I, well, you get the point. I don't want to get myself in too much trouble here. Although the ADHD people are off on something else now. Squirrel. That's a real thing, and I get that, okay? I'm not trying to make light of it. As a matter of fact, what I really want to do is I want to co-opt that term out of the medical thing and bring it into the spiritual world, and especially the church world. Because one of the models that we seem to want to follow in church work is what I consider to be a spiritual ADHD problem. There's just not much focus so we find churches and Christians who are all over the map. And it, it's like I can't lock in on one thing very long, and so I just have to have lots of different things. And so we have churches that have programming to the nth degree. And it causes power failure in the lives of people and in the life of the church. And Jesus is very pointed here. Now I'll come back to the scripture. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their point of focus. And it is way off base from what Jesus has been teaching them. Verse 7, Jesus responds to them. He says, he said to them, Nunya, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But now he gives them focus in verse 8. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And one of the reasons I think that we lose our power in the way we approach this thing called the Christian life and this thing called church work is that we are so out of focus and we're all over the map with what we're trying to pull off as a church. What is the primary function of a church? And if you only looked at a bulletin for most churches, it would be hard-pressed to figure out the answer to that question. Because we have this going on and that going on in our churches. 
And we have stuff on Monday, and we have stuff on Fridays, and we have Wednesdays, and we have people on campus, and we have people off campus, and we have this program ministry and that program ministry. And oh, by the way, we also throw in worship services on Sundays or all time during the weekend. What is it that is the point of focus for us? Jesus gives us the answer. I believe he does, at least. I'm going to operate in my life as if he does. And we, we actually pull it from Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission, we call it. But we also find this in Luke's gospel. I'm not going to take the time to go back and read it. You can go look at it. But over in Luke chapter 24, towards the end of all that Jesus is doing and saying, according to Luke's gospel, before he picks up the book of Acts for us, we find it boiled down to the point of focus for us. If you happen to suffer from spiritual ADHD, let me encourage you to focus in on this one driving truth that Jesus gives to us. Make disciples. But I really do think that modern church life, if we're not careful, works against disciple-making. Because we get spread out all over the map and discipleship gets lost in the process. And I think that one of the reasons that's true is because when you really boil it down, making disciples is hard work. Being a disciple is hard work. It's just a lot easier to go lay a brick for Jesus or push a broom for Jesus than it is to do the hard work of discipleship. I was reading a book recently back to this spiritual ADHD concept. This pastor is, of all places, in Southern California. He happens to be getting it right, in my opinion, in the way he has led his church. It is a church that is designed to grow disciples. And in a world that trumpets out the validity of special programming and all that kind of stuff, his church has made the decision. We decided to just focus in and what we do is we aim to build disciples here. Interestingly, he made this comment. He said, you know, I found that in, the, in the, the world of the church, he said, if I say to people, we're going to have a three-week study on the book of Revelation, and in that I'm going to reveal to you who the Antichrist is, he said, we will pack out the church. But when I talk about having a class where we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we can't get people to show up for that. It's a focus problem. So among other things, I think what we should take from what Jesus is saying here is not only do we avoid power failure by having the right focus, we, um, we need to make sure that we know what that right focus is. So let me jump forward. That's the first two. Keep focus and stay in the channel. Stay on it. Here's a third one. This grows out of what Jesus says to them in the latter part of verse 7. And this one is one of those things that's a little bit interesting, I think. And that is, he says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that... And now listen how he stacks up these statements of authority. It is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father, that's a 
That's a position of authority, to be sure. Has fixed, in other words, the Father, that is God the Father, he's the one who made the decision. And then he adds a third one to it, says, by his own authority. And so, in other words, what Jesus says to the disciples is, you are focused here. That's none of your business. That's out of focus. That's out of the channel from which you should be operating. You should be making disciples. And the reason you should is because God is the one who gets to call the shot. But that's a problem for churches. Especially for us, if we decide that we want to try to be the going church, then all of a sudden now we have to figure out all these little ways that we're going to be the going church. Whatever that means. Lauren, our daughter, played basketball when she was, I don't know how old was it, probably five years old, something like that. Okay, that's really not, that, that's a stretch to say she played basketball. Okay. She was on a basketball team. She got the shirt. She had to go to the games, had to go to practice. She didn't play much uh, because their, church, their coach wanted to win. Um, but here's one of the things that we saw there. I, I think she was probably five, six, eight. That's what I said, five or six. Five plus six is eight. So that she was, anyway, she was little. And she's on this basketball team. And there's a coach for this team. Now, here's, if you happen to be a parent of young children who are in sports, and you're not the one who has the shirt that says coach on it, Here's a news flash for you. You ain't the coach. All right? Now, I learned that as I coached my own boys in soccer and that kind of thing. But, but with Lauren's team, we had this eight-year-old all-star. He played for the Detroit, what's the Detroit? Pistons. He, he, okay, he didn't, okay? But his daddy thought he did. And we had a bona fide coach for this team. And then we had Alex. And Alex was the team as far as his daddy was concerned. And his daddy would sit up in the stands. Now, I get it, okay? My daughter was on this team. I understand that they needed some help, right? But this daddy believed that Alex was the savior for that team. Every time Alex got the ball, his dad would say, shoot a three, shoot a three. Now, here's a news flash for you. An eight-year-old kid, it's all he can do to get the ball from the three-point line to the goal. To get it in the goal, it's just a miracle. Even for Alex, who was an all-star. But his daddy didn't get that. And so his daddy was the real coach for his son, even though he didn't have the shirt that said coach. You with me on that? You've seen that in kids' sports, right? <laughs> Some of you are going... Ooh, am I doing that with my kids? If you have to ask the question, you probably are. <laughs> now, the reason I bring that up here is because it's an easier way for us to get the truth. And the truth is that many times we treat God's team like we're the coach. And so when we're off or out of focus in the first place, and then we insist on being the coach, we get power failure. Now, from our vantage point, it looks pretty good because we're getting it going the way we want it to go. 
The problem with that is it's not the way God wants it to go much of the time. And God's the one who gets to call the shots. That's what Jesus says to these guys. The first part of his message is it's none of your business as far as the times and the seasons. And then he turns right around and he says, but here's the channel for you. Here's your point of focus for you. And it's so because God made it that way. Three different statements of authority. He's fixed it by his own authority. He's the father. He gets to call the shots. And so here's, here's this, let me step into an intermediate statement here before I go to the last point. If we pull all of those things together, our responsibility is to keep our eye in the right place and to keep our hearts in the right place as a church, as individuals in the church. We will follow where God tells us to go. One of the places we know the primary point of reference for us is that we make disciples. That involves reaching disciples, conversions we would call that, but it involves much more than Baptists historically have cared about on the making disciples because we've always pushed out for the, we need more baptisms, we need more people, we need a million more than 54 and whatever else we used to say. But then we see people come to know Christ and we just leave them. Okay, you're in. We notched our gun belt. But that's not discipleship. That's getting somebody to just buy into your agenda. And so as a church, we come in and The goal is discipleship, to grow people to be like Christ. How do you know when a church is getting this right? I think it's a fair question. I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves as a point of understanding as we go through the process. Okay, so what does it look like when a church is really good at making disciples? So let me give you what I think is part of an answer. I know that it's not the full answer, but it's a pretty good part of it, and it might just challenge us a little bit. On October the 9th, we're going to have a special service here. Now, we went to the deacons with this recommendation on Thursday night. The deacons agreed to it. Um, And so on October the 9th, which I think is like three weeks from today or something like that. Is that right? Do you remember? Okay. Um, We as a church are going to ordain Brian Cornish to the ministry, okay? Now, y'all know Brian, right? Okay. Um, Normally, the process going into this is pretty intense. Uh, Months worth of training and teaching, those kind of things. Uh, Part of the, the process that we will go through with him is there will be an ordination council where we will ask him some questions, and man, are we getting some good questions ready. But we will come to this time frame on that day and this church will formally say we believe that God has called and equipped Brian as a minister of the gospel. Now that's a, that's a huge thing for a church. Back to my question. How do we know when as a church we're getting discipleship Right? One of the things that I've come to look for through the years is that when a church is really good at keeping their eye on the, on the right place and our energies and our efforts and our budgeting and all of that stuff is at the right place, which is that we, everything we do is geared towards making disciples. When we get that right, I've seen God raise up generations of ministers 
out of single uh, congregations. My son is here. Um, We like seeing him, but we love it when his wife comes to see us. Um, And I I was thinking through, Colin is a youth minister at First Baptist Church in Edinburgh, and uh, I was thinking through this this week, knowing they were going to be up here. Brandon got married yesterday, and so we were part of all of that. And, um, you know, I was thinking through that church where Colin was called to the ministry and a couple of years ago, a year and a half, so we went down. He was ordained there. Um, I don't remember how many, four or five of Colin's contemporaries growing up in that church are in the gospel ministry now, licensed, ordained, serving as ministers in various churches around the area. Um, but that's not just his generation. We start looking backwards and over a 20-year stretch, we, we just saw this constant stream of young ministers that God called to the ministry out of that church. And one of the reasons for that is because that church was serious about making disciples. I go back to another church, a church my dad pastored when uh, I was a teenager in Odessa. And I was one of the ones who came out of that ministry in that particular church, Belmont Baptist Church in Odessa, Texas. And and this long string of guys, one of my best friends in the world, even to this day, in that church, called to the ministry, serving as a pastor of several decades now in the panhandle of Texas. We just saw this, this regular wave of young ministers coming out of that church and going out to serve. The the pastor of that church now was one of those preacher boys who grew up in that church as just a guy working in the oil field. And God changed his life. The church discipled him and taught him what it was like, what it meant to hear from God, not just rely on folk religion. One of of the identifying marks of a church that gets discipleship right is God starts putting people into that church who will be leaders of his church going forward. But here's the reason I was almost hesitant to throw that out there today. It would be easy for us to hear that and go, well, that's what we need then. We need to start looking for that. We start grabbing people and say, hey, you need to be in the ministry. You know what? It's not about people who say, I think think I'll be a pastor. It is people who learn to walk with the Lord and somehow in that process, God does an incredible, miraculous work and he calls them to special service. But for every one he calls, there are dozens who grow to be like Jesus, which is the model. That's the focal point. That's the channel in which we are to live our lives out as individuals and as a church. So the key to avoiding power failure is to make sure that we keep those things in line. We stay in the channel. We stay focused about it. And we stay in submission to the Father because it's his church, not ours. It's his directive, not our choices that drive us. Last thing, and this, well, so here, here's the, the key to avoiding power failure is also that we stay on mission. This is different than staying on focus. It grows out of being 
in focus all the time. But here's a statement I want you to get, and this comes out of verse 8. Here's the statement I want you to get. Power presupposes mission. Before I read that and explain what I'm talking about, let me see if I can give you the example on the front side. This committee, the Committee on Committees, is going to, once it's formed here, is going to go out as we go into the uh, the next year. Much of their work for this year is already done. There's still some smaller things to do. But uh, they're going to go out, and they're charged with helping to staff the committees of this church so that we uh, are effective and efficient in the way we do church, make disciples, that is. Uh, but I'll promise you, some of the things that they will run into is they will talk to people, and some of those people will go, you know, you know, I'm just tired. I just need to kind of I need to take a year off. We hear that a lot from our nominating committee because we always have need for teachers. And many of you are great teachers, but you're tired. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, and so what happens is I hear those kind of reports and I go, okay, so we're having, we're experiencing a power failure here, which usually means that we have adopted the wrong model. I say that because I cannot believe that Jesus ever intended to put a system out there that intentionally was designed to burn people out. I don't think that's what his intent was. Which means that if we start burning out, something's not right. And so as this committee goes to work, or as our nominated committee continues to look for workers in the children's area, in the youth area, and even in the adult area, we start doing all those things, and people keep going, I'm tired, I'm tired, I just need to take some time off. I get that, because we've had a small group of people carrying the freight around here. They are tired. All of us have a place to serve in this. But sometimes what happens is we take on our responsibilities as a church or as individuals within the church, but we lose sight of the mission. And so it becomes just another job for us. Power presupposes mission. Listen to the way Jesus says it here, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What is the mission that Jesus has given to his disciples? And the answer to that is, that is that they be disciples and that they make disciples. You with me? All right. So he's saying here in verse 8, the mission is out there. Go to Luke 24 later and read that last handful of verses there. You will see that Jesus has gone to great length with his disciples by that time to say, we are at the end of my time with you. Don't forget what you've seen and heard. He says in there, of these, you are witnesses. In other words, he's saying to those disciples, I have taught you how to make disciples. You teach people to walk with Jesus. Because when you walk with Jesus, you get to know Jesus. You get to watch him work. And when Jesus works, it's hard to miss it. That's Luke 24. So now he comes back in just before he leaves. Incredibly important words. 
And we get all locked up on, on the Jerusalem to the othermost parts of the earth and all that kind of stuff. And we want to make big systems out of all that kind of stuff. And we lose sight of the power source. The power only shows up because there's a mission. So when we lose sight of the mission and we start working our own agenda, of course there's no power there because it's not his deal. So let me just finalize it this way. We'll go ahead and bring the musicians up at this point. I think as best I could research it, I think this quote comes from D.L. Moody. Many years ago, revivalist and much to be said about his life. But I think this is probably a loose quote, but it's as close as I could verify. He is alleged to have said these words. The world has yet to see what God can do in, with, and through a man who is totally committed to him. Let let that sink in. This is a guy who knew how to read scripture. (laughs) And he knew about Simon Peter and John and James and Paul and all of those great heroes of the faith, and yet he still says the world has yet to see what God can do through, in, with a man who is totally committed to him. And then the kicker, he said, I will, be, I will do my best to be that man. What might God do to an individual or a local church who is totally committed to him? What manner of life might we see if as a church we said, whatever else we're going to do, we're going to be really good at making disciples. Let's be that church. You be that person. Let's pray. And so, Father, we find ourselves in unfortunate places on passages like this. And we know that it's really easy for us to buy into the spirit of the day, and the flavor of the day, Christianity, and those big topics and those big events and all of those things and in the process lose sight of our calling. So I pray that you would drilled deep into us your vision simply stated that we would be a church that would be serious about making disciples reaching people for Christ teaching people to walk with Christ being all that you call us to be help us to be really good at that not from our own energies or from our own point of wisdom But as your Holy Spirit lives out through us, may your name be magnified. And even today, we ask that you would be doing that work in us. And so as your Spirit moves in the hearts of us individually now, I pray that you would change lives right now. I pray that those people who have been kind of 
edging away from you would be really aware of your calling even now. Help us to get it right. Give us the ability to be honest. Give us the courage we need to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name.